If you're not mad about ads, and that's fair enough, choose the Dave McWilliams Plus option on Apple Podcasts, and you can hear this podcast in all its glory without the ads. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by Acast. How are you doing there? It is time for the podcast. This week we are going to, well today we are going to be talking about the economics of the beautiful game, the economics of football. You may have, like myself and John, sort of bored our way through the Champions League uh, <laughs> finals there the other night. With <laughs> Man City, of course, dominating everything, writing all the checks, the team with the biggest checkbook wins everything. Internationale, on the other hand, Inter Milan, a romantic team, started simply because they wanted to play more foreigners than Italians. They were a okay. diverse team. They were a, This was the AC Milan was the original Athletic Club Milan. Yeah. Just actually started as a football and cricket club, right? Right. And then, because there was a lot of English workers in Milan. Okay. And then they split because the Italians, some Italians, wanted to keep the team for Italians. So the Internazionale, Inter Milan, comes from the fact that it was the split that these were Italians who said, no, we want to play foreign players. Right, okay. So that's its heritage. It's heritage. Right, and Man City, I suppose, when we were kids, Man City were always the perennial underdogs in Manchester. Yeah. Played in Main Road. A fellow called Colin Bell was their sort of one of their main, they're all very good players. Yeah. But I think I remember, did I tell you about being stranded in Hollyhead one evening? Go on. Well, Hollyhead is always a tricky one. I tell you, I was driving, this is so typical of me, right? I was driving from London to Hollyhead. Yeah, an um, epic drive. I've done it many drive, times. An epic drive, but I, being a typical paddy, I had never driven in England before, and I thought there was one motorway going north. This was pre GPS. <laughs> right. Okay. Remember the A to Z guidebook? Yeah. Right. And I got on the motorway going north, and there are two motorways going north. One goes up the left hand side of England. One goes up the right. That's such a rookie mistake. <laughs> Do you have a paper map? No, I was in my head. I had a sort of a, I had a sort of intercert geography map of England in my head. (laughs) So I ended up going on the one that takes. There's a mountain range in between the two. Yeah, that's right. I ended up having to go across the fucking Pennines. Exactly. (laughs) I ended up somewhere like a Leeds. I thought, oh, this doesn't look right. So I missed the boat. I missed my boat. (laughs) So I missed the boat, and I had to end up. I ended up in Hollyhead, and Man City were playing in the playoffs to get up from the second division into the premiership. The second right? division. Second division, right? Yeah. Which was then called the second division, now called the championship, right? Right. And I'm in a bar in Hollyhead, 
which is even my geography suggests very far from Manchester. Yes. Right. Yeah. And the place was full of Manx, full of Manx in singing Blue Moon, which is a great song. Right. right. And that's when they had. Uh, I told you, I think Sean Goater. Oh yes. Who yes, was playing yes, the, yeah, okay, and they yes, had the, yeah, and they yeah. had the t-shirts which were feed the goat, which I thought was <laughs> one of the greatest things I thought I was ever seen. And I suppose so. I spent the night in the car in Hollyhead, nice. having gone on the lash with the Man City fans, and then I got the boat. So. Let's stick to the economics, the geography. But, but this is the thing, because I was watching the match last night. You know me and football. You've, you love football all your life. I uh, always had a passing interest in football. Yeah, you were more into uh, music. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But recently, I yes, have... you've become quite into it. Yeah, I, I don't know why. It's kind of, I don't know, it's a maturity thing or whatever. I've grown into football, but I, I kind of like it. But I was just looking at the game the other day, and it was boring, wasn't it? Yeah. But they've just won the Champions League, the league... And the FA Cup. Yeah. But they bought them. That's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Buying. They, they bought, bought everything. Them. Now, I have, as you know, not a great kind of head on me for business and football and all that kind of stuff. But I got into the Fantasy Football League with some of the lads. <laughs> I know. I get the email. I It's actually great crack. So I picked my team at the beginning of the year. Based on their looks, John, was it? <laughs> well, it was based on hair, actually. Haircuts, you like a haircut. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Grealish always got, got on the team. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good haircut. Uh, and, and good teeth as well. So was, okay, uh, you like yeah, teeth, right? Very, but for some reason, based on that strategy, I was languishing on the bottom of the table. Maybe that's because of the strategy was... <laughs> yes, yeah, that could have something to do with it. But I brought in a statistician. Okay. The missus. Okay. And she crunched a few numbers and we bought a few different players. And lo and behold... If it was the proper league, I climbed out of the relegation zone. <laughs> and you're now mid-table obscurity. Yeah, so, but I've beaten the likes of Cheers and Ema Cool, so that's all right. That's all right. Okay, these are name-checking old mates of ours. But today we are going to talk about, against the background of Man City winning everything, against the background of what's happening, even in a sport I don't play, not anything about, but I know something's going in golf. There's also, it's basically yeah, the yeah. financialization of sport. Is what we're going to talk about yeah. and how it has destroyed or could destroy sport from the top down, not from the bottom yeah. up. And, and also, by the way, and also how it's being used politically as well with oh, sports yeah. washing. Yeah, no, absolutely. So this is going to be the economics of football, but sports in general, but the economics of football. And um, we're going to go to somebody who actually knows something about this, John. <laughs> you and I, exactly. <laughs> we're going to go to Roger Mitchell. Roger Mitchell was the chief executive of the SPL, the Scottish Premier League, right. for many years. Now, Roger Mitchell came up on my radar screen through a friend of ours and a friend of the podcast, Pippa Malgram, who you may or may not have remembered, who's a regular at Kilconomics and somebody that we've had on the podcast and is a great strategic thinker about global affairs and whatever. But he now has a fantastic advisory company from Italy, where he lives, called albacchiera.net. Have a look at it, because you know over the years that I've been involved in cartoons and the punk economics series and trying to make economics and explaining the world a little bit more palatable to people who may not necessarily be studying economics. And this site came up, and it's Roger's site, and he's explaining, this is the most extraordinary thing, European and British and English football, as well as, of course, Irish football, as if it was being explained by Logan Roy. So it combines John's two favourite things, <laughs> succession and football. Roger, how are you? 
Great to see you. I'm very good, David, and thank you for having me on. It's a great honour to be on such a podcast. Pippa is is a good friend, as is Grant Williams, with whom I do my own little podcast. Nothing like yours, but it really talks all about, and has done for four years, about sport and macrofinance and how one is affecting the other. So um, I'm just so pleased that, firstly, Pippa liked that article and that you picked up on it, because, you know, what you do and what you write is is right in my sweet spot. And and that article with James Joyce, I just thought that was amazing. Oh, thank you very much. uh, Well, that's coming around again because it is Bloomsday this week. It is Bloomsday at the end of the week, the 16th of June. It's interesting that I actually know Grant Williams. I've done a gig with Grant over in the States. I also believe, more importantly, Roger, that your granny's from Dunleary. And that's much more. Ah. She is. I come from a, a mixture of immigrant families. My father's side, his mother uh, came from Dunleary, and my mother's side came from Italy. So I'm Scottish only in upbringing. My blood is is Irish Italian. Well, there is a. I mean, I mean the great the Paolo Nettini. I mean, there is a great tradition. Lou Macari. There's a great tradition Absolutely. of Italian Scots. Paolo's my cousin. No way. <laughs> really? Paolo Nettini's your cousin. I love it. Anyway, let us talk about this. Yes. So football, huge industry. You've written this beautiful piece, which is trying to explain football and the industry to Logan Roy against the set of Succession and the Family. Talk to me about it, Roger. Well, the the, ba- the background is that uh, I guess I'm guilty of being one of the people that has taken football in a certain direction since the early 90s. You know, all of us came into the industry at the time that the English Premiership was set up and Scottish Premiership that I ran at the end of the 90s was all about the professionalisation of the game. And, you know, I'm trying to say now that 30 years later, we have taken this game of ours so much into the world of finance and so dominated by the market forces that my view is this, David, that you know we either have to go the full way on this and go full American uh, sports leagues with, with, with no relegation and promotion, or we, as football fans and as an industry, say, we don't like this anymore. There's so many problems with it. Uh, teams that are doped with with big money that's got nothing to do with the traditions of the game win things, and it's not what we were grown up with. And I say, well, why don't we think about going back to the the film Kes uh, with that wonderful clip with uh, Brian Glover in the Man United strip, and it's the basically the socialism of soccer. And this article talks about me in this scenario where I'm explaining all of this to the Roy family, obviously with Logan, getting immediately my point, which is with open leagues and no salary caps, both of which are not what America has, you're ultimately just going to give all the money to the players, which we have done for 30 years. We've done really well in growing the top lines in football for 30 years. We've just paid it all out to players and agents who are frankly laughing at us. So this article explains this to Logan, and he agrees with me in very colourful language that it's just a complete shambles of stupidity, whereas his children in this article need a little bit more explaining, and that allows me to explain the last 30 years of the game and then the end of the article, David goes into what I think you need to do to deliver, you know, the Kez vision, the vision of the football we grew up in the 70s and 80s. Okay, now, Roger, we'll get on to the solutions, but let's look at the problem. And and John will do his best Kendall Roy impression. His, uh-huh, yeah. his, his Kendall rap totally. is particularly, particularly... But let's come back, Roger. What is the problem with 
football right now. Explain to us what the problem is, number one. Explain to us why relegation and promotion is part of that problem, number two. And explain to me what American closed leagues are, because I don't know much about the United States or its football and uh, sport infrastructure. Well, you know, it's quite funny because ironically, it should be the other way around. America and the American dream is about being as good as you can be and working yourself up from zero to become president of the United States if you want. In reality, their sport operates in a completely different business. Uh, you are anointed to have a franchise and be part of a league, whether that's the NFL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball. And there's no relegation or promotion. You are in a private members club, a country club, where it's set up, David, it's set up to make money. They have seen sport as a business from day one. They have very established salary caps, which don't allow the players to eat away all your marginality, all your profit. And they make money. They make money because, uh, and again, I can do this because this is a finance podcast also, the volatility isn't there. Whereas in European leagues, it's just full of risk and volatility. You know, you're a Leeds United fan, they went down. That is a major risk that in the financial world is reflected in the valuations. I think they were bought this week for less than 200 million. Whereas LAFC, which is a nothing, a nothing MLS club, is worth nearly 10 times that. So what what so, European so football MLS, has, what is MLS? It is the American Soccer League, which is along exactly the same lines as the rest of their sports leagues. It's a closed league. And one of their clubs, Inter-Miami, has just bought Messi this month. Right, so, exp- uh, so, so explain this. So how does Inter-Miami work, let's say, the business model vis-a-vis Manchester United? Just explain that to me. Well, the, the MLS will sell franchises to private individuals who will own them and then make a business of them. So there is a certain amount of franchises. Sometimes they expand it, but, but not really. Inter Miami is one of those franchises. They operate under the league's rules around salary caps, around how they need to market the game, how the central media deals have done. The MLS have got a big deal with Apple which is an exceptionally interesting mechanism for our industry. So Inter-Miami, through the budget it has for players, has decided to allocate a part of that to the biggest star in in, in football, which is uh, Lionel Messi, and he will now play in the MLS. Their valuations are so high because all of these franchises and all of the, the codes, sports codes in America, are guaranteed to make money. If the revenue is 100 and your salary cap tops out at 60, you've got 40 points of margin, which, like any company, go down to the bottom line and then you get a valuation like the one of LAFC I mentioned. We in Europe don't do that because our game is different. It came from a different place. It believes that it's a pyramid and that you go up and down, but that has created uh, inherent problems that we can talk about whenever you're ready. And I, when I just want to get back to the article, you, you're explaining using Logan Roy's uh, beautifully colourful language. <laughs> uh, something about one of the sons says something to, to him about, well, you know, look, don't worry. So it's Kendall looking for the dad's approval. And you say, you idiot, as a business vision, European football is a fucking bastard case of stupidity. Every fresh penny they make, whoring their product out, is pissed away the same day. It's a dick substitute for billionaires wanting the fame and relevance that a bank account won't give them. Wealthy bad actors spunking the top line up the wall on players like Imelda Marcus at a Gucci store. That obliges everyone else to do the same with insolvency, the inevitable bastard child of their relegation promotion. Even Connor could see all this. (laughs) 
That's yeah, so I'll quick pleased to that. Um, that is so good, Roger. That's so good. Thank you. Thank you, John. Thank you. I was quite pleased at that because people that listen to me and know me will realize that it's not really me projecting onto Logan Roy. That's how I speak. <laughs> uh, and, and the great thing, so, not only is that how you speak, but that's how Logan Roy would have spoken because deep down, do you remember that Logan Roy was a Hibs fan? Yes, yes, yeah, was, and then yeah. there was his son bought the wrong club and everything like <laughs> yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Just yeah, so like, yes. But let's go That's back. Right. Let's go back. Right, European football is a fucking basket case. Every fresh penny they make whoring their product out is pissed away. It's a dick substitute for billionaires. You've got it all in one, <laughs> right? Wealthy bad actors spunking the top line up the wall and players. Imelda Marks and Gucci. It obliges everyone to do the same thing. The inevitable bastard child is relegation. Let's go through all those pieces. And I mean, this is this is. This is it, in a nutshell. That's it. Well, well l- listen, um, when you've got open leagues and when you have got prize money for achieving, like getting into the Champions League, that's big money, people will spend money to get those things, you know, and, and there's a, a direct correlation between what you spend on players and how well you are on the field. There's, that's well established. So everybody is in the market. It's an arms race for playing talent. So if you get one back actor coming in, let's call him Todd Bowley in this situation, who is making all these bad decisions, he obliges everybody else to do the same. Otherwise, you're basically saying, I'm not going to do that. I'm a sensible investor. I'm a prudent steward of a football club. And I'm not going to do that. Then your fans will start saying, why are we losing players to Todd Bowley and PSG and Man City and everything like that? So it's set up for everybody to be obliged to be irrational and spend more than they actually earn on players. So, you know, whilst for 30 years we have done exceptionally well on getting fresh revenues into sport, soccer, football, we have. It's all just been, you know, spunked up against the wall the next day and more so. Yeah, well, yeah, it it is, you know. Listen, David, you know this, you know, like imagery and especially in content these days, we're so time poor and content glut that you you have to, I'm a great believer, that's why the podcast I've got is called Are You Not Entertained? If you can't do something like this, you can write the most beautiful theory and, and, and make beautiful points, but people are going to check out. So, you know, I, I think you have to, to use that, that kind of stuff. I would say amen to that. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, ultimately, you know, let's, let's, work, let's work on Leeds a little bit, right? Because it's a good example. Leeds, back in the days of Peter Ridsdale, went very big on exactly what I talked about. They bought Rio Ferdinand. They bought a huge amount of players. They did it with something called a sale and leaseback mechanism with an insurance wrapper. And they got they themselves bought, they into They bought Robbie Keane twice. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they played, yeah, they yeah. played Robbie for sitting on the bench for months on end. <laughs> I was Dave O'Leary. What you know, Walkenstown's finest. I mean, yeah. <laughs> our fingerprints are all over this disaster from Killinarden to Walkenstown back to Leeds. Come well, on. you know, to be fair to Ridsdale, and I do want to say this. You know, he saw the way that football was going in that period and he wanted to be the right side of the drawbridge. Wanted to yeah. get Leeds United in the Big Boys Club. They got to the semi final of the Champions League. Everything looked great until it didn't. Uh, and then you have to pick up the pieces of the money and the debt you have accumulated. And, and we know what happened to Leeds and, you know, the doldrums that they were in for many years until Radriziani came in. And, you know, he's not a prudent guy. He, he's, he bet a lot. If they hadn't gone up the year they'd gone up, I think they would have been serious trouble. He brought in the 49ers as an investor. 
Uh, they did, the 49ers did a great deal that they said, look, we will buy it off you, but the price we will pay you dependent on where you are in relegation and, and promotion and which league you're in. And, and Leeds United, you know, thinking about the losses they would make as a valuation going down to the championship, you know, have to be irrational and spend on players. And that's the thing that kills us. Anybody that comes in and buys a championship team and says, I'm going to get into the championship, they're going to spend too much money and, you know, it obliges everybody else to do the same. And, you know, even if you get up, you probably have compromised your financial capital structure forever. So, you know, uh, basically saying whichever way you cut it, promotion and relegation is the bastard child of inevitable insolvency. And it's just true. This isn't theory. There's so many data points around here. Derby County's one, you know, like... So many. So my whole point, David, is this. We are in this halfway house of thinking we've still got a traditional game based on the old up and down of football. You know, you go up, you go down, meritocracy, everything like that. We still think we've got this game, but we don't. It's been contaminated so much by these market forces, by American money, by oligarch money, by by golf money now, that everybody is being forced to run this into the ground. And, you know, since, as I said at the start of the show, I'm probably guilty of being one of the ones that started all this. I wanted to be the one that put down on paper how I think we get out of it. Okay, now let's look at, because we've witnessed with the golf this week, we've we've got the oligarchs yeah. in football, we've got, you know, teams like Man City, which are in effect a toy for a regime, if nothing else. Now, your view is that football is on a vortex of economic and financial calamity because of these inbuilt problems in the system. How do you get out yes. of that? How do you go back to, you know, and, and again, without being too nostalgic, without being too Brian Clough about it, without being too 1970s about it, without being too John and I going to Milltown to see Shamrock Rovers in the 70s about it. I mean, how do you go back to somewhere where the whole thing's a bit more sustainable? Well, there's the easy version and then there's the more complex version. Uh, the article's got both. The easy version is the application of, of a, a hard salary cap. You just say to everybody, you can only spend this amount on your player budget. Sadly, David, football has tried that. It's called financial fair play. And we saw how Man City just slapped around UEFA with the best lawyers in the world and said, we're not having that. Today, we have Man City with 115 charges against it by the English Premier League all around this area about basically spending more than they should and and what was put down by the authorities as an idea of prudent salary caps. These people don't care about these things. They're not in it for a financial return. They're in it for everything to do with soft power, uh, with with the geopolitical games around the Gulf, and even you can go on to dollar reserve currency. There's a real, really interesting rabbit hole to go down on all of that, and, and, and Saudi going towards China as opposed to the traditional Pax Americana they did with Kissinger back in the 70s. That's for another podcast. But actually, but that's a podcast that's we'll definitely simple... come back to. I like that. We'll definitely come back to that. But let's, he's going. My, my antenna are up now. Pax Americana. Saudi, China. John fancies himself as a latter-day Kissinger over here. He sits in McKenna's at the back strategizing. He almost has a chessboard out, moving pawns around. And Bishop tonight, well, says well, John, as he dismisses another country and another regime. That's it, that's it. Okay, but let's go back, Roger. Let's go back to the sustainability. Yeah, so you you, you could probably do it with a simple salary cap and, and everything would be rosy in the garden, but it's just not applicable. 
because there's too many people that are too powerful that will find ways to get around it. So my view is to go extremely radical. I guess in in many ways, everything I've done in my career has been, you know, on the far end of radical and, and contrarian thinking. If we believe that football is the social asset that every fan on a terrace always says it is, it's that moment of generational bonding. It's the moment when maybe, you know, it was the only time you could have a decent relationship with your father because the usual son-dad awkwardness wasn't there. Tell, tell me all about it. I can, I can write the whole book on that one. We're all there. We're all there. We're all there. The only place that it wasn't was on, on the terraces. So if it is that social asset, you get a, a young kids playing football rather than doing things that are not what they should be doing. The gymnasium of life is the dressing room, all of that. If you want to do that and you consider that the sports governance is set up as a monopoly, as it is, you know, this is the whole theme of the PGA today. UEFA absolutely is a monopoly. FIFA is a monopoly. The ATP in tennis is a monopoly. All of these things, if you put social asset and monopoly together, how does the finance world deal with that? It becomes a regulated industry. Now, a regulated industry works where somebody says, you're in a monopoly position, so we won't let you screw everybody with pricing you will be regulated about how much you can make out of this, whether it's 10%, 15%, 6%. It doesn't matter. So my idea is this, that we make football, European football, a regulated industry where everybody has to only earn 10%. So if they're spending you know, the salary cap, let's say for a particular club, the salary cap per year is £50 million total, they are allowed to make a regulated return of 10%. That's £5 million profit. That That is what they will make. If at the same time, that club, through the wonderful revenues we have in football, is making $150 million in revenue, 150 minus 55 is 95 of profit. But we're not going to give the clubs that because they only get the 10%. That 95 is ours, the, the family of football, so that we can start doing the things we talk about we don't really do. We invest in facilities, stadium, an elite academy, women's football, schools football, all the things that have been lost. So I'm basically, my, my simple idea, the, the best ideas are the simplest one. It's a regulated industry and the excess marginality that that generates really goes into what is a social asset. You know, it's fascinating for Irish people to listen to this because we have something broadly similar called the GAA, which mm-hmm. is a a social asset for communities. I've always been amazed playing soccer as a kid all around Dublin. As we got older, I used to play football. Then we went to the over 35s league. Now in the over 50s league, Roger, which is a very sad thing. But football has always been the very poor cousin. So the GA clubs would have a great pitch. They'd have a great facility. They'd have showers. They'd have dressing rooms. They'd have gyms. They have all these things. The lads playing soccer were still getting changed in the back of a car on the side of a road, right? Because, precisely because the GAA had figured out, as you say, this organizational structure regulated based not only on a salary cap, but on amateurism for the players, right? I'm not saying that is the model, but it's not a million miles away from what you're saying. No, it isn't. What you're saying is it's some halfway house between that GAA model of amateurism and community and all that good stuff and the fact that this is a professional sport. Football is a professional sport. So it's somewhere in the middle there. Is that what you're saying? 
Yeah, it is. What I'm basically saying is that it's compromises never work. So uh, the whole theme of, of, my, of my thesis is we either go the whole American way, which in football terms is the MLS, into Miami, just buying Messi. That's a nice model. It's a lovely model. It's sustainable. It works. Everybody's happy. You could argue that uh, you got a lot of meaningless games at the end of the season because there's no relegation and everybody checks out. That's the other side of that. But as a business, it works low volatility, guaranteed profits, and everybody is happy. We want the way football was, and this isn't a nostalgia kick. I'm not a nostalgia guy. You know, I I just believe that I see a problem that needs fixed. And and the the problem very simply is that we have given it all away to players because the fans demand it, David. You know, you've been in the terraces where a good striker is having a good two or three months, banging in the goals and his contract's up and and the guy beside you is shouting, give him whatever he wants, give him whatever he wants, because the fans make the owners and the clubs do this. See, this is the the fascinating thing. The fans, for example, demand, you know, that everyone gets a Haaland centre-forward, right? And pays that player a fortune. And at the same time, they complain about the fact that some carpetbagger who's made money on oil in Russia owns the thing, right? You can't have both, right? That's if, right. If you want That's a top right. striker, you're going to have to have the bad, or I wouldn't say bad, the inappropriate owner. And the inappropriate owner only owns it because... It's a willy-waving competition for stuff that his bank balance That's right. can't actually buy. I've kind of like tried to summarize that in another article with, with the phrase, if you don't want to think of your club as a business, make sure you never need a businessman's money. Because businessmen are like that. You know, they're a collection of characters with five o'clock shadows and a rap sheet of the SEC and, and company's house. <laughs> and fans don't see the link. They push them to be irrational to basically put their, their their club in financial peril when that club goes down. And let's be honest, for smaller clubs these days, the only people that are going to be interested are the spivs. Really, they really yeah, are because there's no money to be made. It's, the, it's what I would call, having worked in the city years ago, it's the emerging markets of investments, right? <laughs> Lovely. No, it is, it is. So you're hoping to buy. Yeah, there, yeah. Was, there was a great sort of scam years ago of countries that had defaulted on their debts. And the only exit strategy for those debts that had been defaulted on was the IMF coming in at some stage, cleaning up the balance sheet and paying with public money the speculative errors of private money. And there was an entire industry based on betting what the IMF would do next. And this is exactly like getting promoted. And the only people who would buy those assets was the spivvy end of the market because it was an entirely, it was a 10 cents on the dollar bet or 20 cents on the dollar bet. And if you hit the jackpot, you made out like a bandit. And if you didn't hit the jackpot, it was almost like an option because the the, the players were so rich in this. And I think that's the same thing with small clubs. You've said it perfectly. They're paying option money. It's, It's a call option. And, and, and these fans that the day before were shouting to overspend, they don't see that they've caused that their club is now owned by somebody without a call option strategy. They don't see it. But you're not, you're not going to change a football fan. When you and I are at Celtic Park, we are the same. David, some metamorphosis happens. Uh, the idea that you can talk rationality into a football fan is a you're mistake. Absolutely, I, was, right? I always so, call it it's the transubstantiation. 
how one person yeah. goes from being a totally normal individual into a lunatic and then goes back yeah. to being a normal individual when the game's yeah, over. Yeah. It is. It's, yeah, a, yeah. It's, it's water and wild. It's the tabernacle of, of nonsense. Before we go, Roger, I just want to ask I love you, this. I love that. I love that. The other game that's huge here in Ireland is, is rugby, right? The national team yeah. is extremely good. There's a structure. It's based on the provinces. There's various leagues. But I'm feeling that all, everything you're warning about is a warning for rugby as well. Well, again, I, I don't need to be Nostradamus here to, to say all of these things. Some of my other articles have commented on it. British rugby is is an utter basket case. You know, this week we saw London Irish go, which I'm sure is exactly. close to you guys' yeah. heart. The owner of that, let's say, is exactly one of those characters I, I described before. Um, um, just got to be careful legally because I think he is quite litigious. Thanks for that. There's a cruise missile coming in from the four courts <laughs> yeah. for the Dave McWilliams podcast. Hard hearts on. Exactly. We need our equivalent of the, the Ukrainian Patriot system to defend us against yes. that. The legal equivalent. But, but, you know, we've had Wasps go down. We've had Worcester go down. Welsh rugby equally is a shambles. And, and it's the same thing. You know, if we talk about sport in general, it's got some major, major issues, David, because the governance is set up to fail. It's just set up to fail. You know, if you think about it, whether it's GAA or or, or it's uh, rugby, there's competing governing bodies, but all of them have got one thing in common. There's no separation of power. They are the legislative, they are the executive, and they are the judiciary. That, in a democracy, is a recipe for disaster. So the governance is horrendous. You throw in their club and country, you throw in the ability to not control player costs, and it's not a question of, is this going to happen in another sport? You have to ask yourself, what chance is there that it won't happen? Because the evidence is all around us. You know, rugby's gone. More or less rugby's gone. You know, and uh, sadly, as ru- tell you as rugby people, what happened to the PGA in golf is coming your way. You know, somebody very big is going to say, look, we can do something different here. So what I've been speaking about for four years with with these articles in my podcast is what I call sports perfect storm. There's just two or three major, major weather fronts all coming together that are going to flatten it. You know, uh, the one that we haven't talked about on here, but we should mention it, is that the younger kids are just in an Elvis moment. You know, like as when Elvis came along in the 50s, all those young kids dropped crooners and jazz players immediately. And as the same thing with the Sex Pistols in the 70s, uh, you weren't listening to ABBA anymore or the Eagles the day after and the parents were up in arms. That's what's happening to Gen Z. They don't watch 90 Minutes. They don't see it the way we see it. They're a completely different machine. So that's one of the weather fronts. The other ones is, you know, the Saudi Arabia. They are not going to stop. They're very clear about they want to own all of sport. And then sport itself is fucked up governance. It really, really is, as I've said. So the question is, who's going to survive in this? It's not who's in danger. It's who's actually going to get to shore. And that's, I guess that's my little soapbox and what I've been doing for a few years. Roger Mitchell, this was absolutely fantastic. Wonderful stuff. We're going to be back on issues such as Saudi, of stuff there. Saudi, John, John's moving the chessboard around here. But it is fantastic. It was everybody who has an interest in sport, who loves it, you don't necessarily have to love it. You just have to have a passing interest. Is fascinating. This is the economics of sport, as you haven't heard it, through the lexicon of Logan and Kendall Roy, articulated by Glasgow's finest, 
cousin of Paolo Nottini. You don't get that in many podcasts. <laughs> no, you don't. You know, but you don't. You don't. But thank you. It's, this, this is this is great, and and like I, I love a lot. It's we're very similar, almost in the way we think and the way we refer to things. And and you know, like we well, we can do this again. You know, one of the big things we did, we didn't talk about. I know you're running out of time, but you know, Ange Podlakosku to Tottenham. You know, for Celtic fans. Yes, that's difficult to understand. You know, Celtic, they say Celtic's a bigger club than Tottenham, but frankly, you're as big as the stage you play on. And, you know, my time in Scottish football was all about realising that Scotland was a market of only 5 million eyeballs. And the way that the, the world of media was going is that they were going to get marginalised, as Holland did, as Portugal did, all the other small leagues. And, 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 you know, that's another big, big theme for another day. Well, what's another huge theme is 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 a, is a favourite of which is the League of Ireland, which is also a totally different story. But I would be fascinated, Roger, to get your take on it. Because, again, the Scottish League, you may well think, is a basket case comparison with five million people. Come over here and you see a situation where the league is growing steadily, but it's much more healthy now. But it needs a whole different way of thinking, perspective, etc. But we can come back to that. But Roger, listen, absolute pleasure. And uh, we will talk to you again soon. Thank you, David. And thank you, John. Okay, Mac, I now have a plan for next year's fantasy football. (laughs) I've learned a little something there. (laughs) But let's talk about everything that, that Roger was saying there, which is fascinating stuff after this. Great. 
is the increasingly concentrated ownership of assets at the very, very top. I mean, yeah. this is in effect the same sort of argument. This is the this is the one percent. Mm. Are the one percent of the one percent argument? So whether it's swanky penthouses in New York, or football clubs, or yachts or super yachts, this is all about luxury fever. Mm. The obsession by wealthy men to actually have toys, and those toys, as you say, give them power. It's not just the trinkets, yeah, but it's as you said that at the top we were talking well, about, you, you know, the sports washing. It allows people to say, oh well. You know, maybe Absolutely. what they do isn't so bad, etc. I mean, it is an appalling vista if a regime that chops up a journalist. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Saudi Arabia. Yeah. Ends up, ends up owning football, golf, tennis, whatever it be. You yeah. know, Formula One, rugby. rugby. You know, you know, yeah. what happens when the let's say, for example, when Leinster or Munster end up owned? Could you imagine this? By a Saudi sovereign wealth fund. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that could happen. Yeah. So I think we probably conclude that this is food for thought. This is emblematic of a drift in late stage capitalism, might I say? Yeah. Where the very few end up owning everything and the very many end up supporting them. And that's the problem.